0: Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks that you're steadfast, just as we sang, as we run after things and people and put our hope in those places that are not steadfast. Help us transfer that hope and dependence on you, the only one that is steadfast in a way that is like no other. So would you help us this morning, Spirit, would you meet us, give us soft hearts, open our ears to what you would have to say to us, open our eyes to what you would want us to see in your word, and change us, make us different as we seek to follow you, surrender to you, moment by moment, would you do it in and through us, we ask it in your name, amen. Good morning, good to see you guys. Uh, My name's John, if you're new, I'm one of the pastors here, we're thankful you joined us. Uh, if you have a Bible and it's already open, open it to 1 John where we just, Bethany just read for us the, the text that we're going to be covering in chapter 3. Uh, we've been in a series in 1 John where we've just been walking through the text, which is typically what we do here at Redemption, to find out like what, what is this letter that the Apostle John writes to the church and what's the context and what's going on and what does it mean for us today. And so John is continuing his thought. If you're new with us, he's been giving us, um, not a spiritual arrogance, but a confidence in an assurance of knowing that we're children of God. We'll get into that even more in the text uh, next week. But this idea that there's these false teachers in the midst of this community, and they've been saying, you really don't have to walk with Jesus this way, you can walk this way. And they're pulling people out of the community, and John comes in and goes, actually, I know Jesus, I walked with him, I touched him, I was with him, and this is incorrect thinking about the way of Jesus. Let me help assure you of what it actually means to live with him and walk with him, abide in him, learn what it means to love. And so what we talked about last week was just this idea, the last couple of weeks, of what it actually means to be a child of God that John continues to press into this idea that we all uh, are not children of God until a decision gets made of surrender to the person of Jesus to understand that we can be adopted into the family of God. He actually says we all start, we're all actually children of the devil until we make that decision for Jesus, which seems harsh and kind of like, oh my goodness, like that's kind of crazy. But he's trying to give this uh, language that it's clear, it's, it's black and white, and there's no question of your assurance. You don't have to go, man, what is really true? Am I really a child of God? And he talks about uh, this idea, and I heard one pastor say it this way, um, uh, when you are a child of God, your heart and your posture is this, thy will be done. Just like Jesus is surrendering to the Father saying, thy will be done, but if you're not a child of God, you kind of say, my will be done, right? And all of us struggle with that. Even if you are a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you go like, how many times this week, if you really evaluated your life, did you say, my will be done? I'm going to do what I want to do versus like, how do I surrender and say, thy will be done in my relationships, in my work, in my school, in my interactions, And that's what John is kind of pressing us into, that if you are a child of the king, you will be formed and shaped into this surrender of understanding thy will be done versus this mental attitude and this heart posture of my will be done. And even that language of my will versus thy will, who's the first created being that instead of bowing their knee to God and saying, thy will be done, they go, no, 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 my will be done is Lucifer. It's the devil. He's the first created being that goes, no, 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 I, I, I want to be worshipped. I don't want to do what God tells me to do. I actually want to go my own way. And this is the language that John is using of like, that's, that's why I'm calling you children of the devil. Because your attitude is way more about my will be done than thy will be done. That's why he uses the language, and again, he's kind of drafting off Jesus' conversation with the religious leaders in John chapter 8. We talked about it last week, where they're saying, like, you know, our our father is Abraham. We are of God, and Jesus goes, actually, you're not. Your, Your father's not Abraham. Your father is the devil. He's been a liar from the beginning, and he continues to operate in that, and that's how you're operating. Don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself in the midst of that. And again, what these false teachers are, are doing is they're splitting up the community. And Jesus says, you can have a relationship with God. You can be a child of God. Just like John uh, says in his gospel, what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, you've crossed from death to life. When you believe in me, you can have new life. You can be adopted. You can be a new creation. And not to be confused at that. These false teachers were claiming this inward change, but their behavior wasn't matching what they were saying. And that's really where we're going to go in the text in these several verses this morning. I want to put it in the form of a question for our big idea this morning is just that if someone claims to be changed inwardly, they claim to be changed inwardly, to what extent is this change a reality outwardly? I think that's a fair question. I think that's what John is driving to. Because again, if like your friends or people you know are leaving this church and beginning to follow these false teachers and you start questioning it, going like, "Well, like that, that actually sounds kind of good that I can just continue to do my sin and, and, and meet the needs of my flesh and I can still be okay with God, like, uh, and, and you're claiming God, but you're not really walking it out. You're not really living it out. You have to question like, do I really believe in Jesus? Is my heart really surrendered there? There was a, um, I was watching TV the other day, and Jurassic Park happened to come on, the original Jurassic Park, if you guys remember, from 1993. And sometimes like, you, I forget how good movies are that are old movies, so I started watching it. And if you know like, the very beginning of Jurassic Park, there's a scene in there at the very beginning where, if you're not familiar with the story or any of the franchise, they, they take this, this DNA from a mosquito that's been fossilized, and they recreate dinosaurs like in real life. And in the midst of that, everybody knows like the T-Rex is like the scariest dinosaur because of his size and his predatory and nature and what he does. But at the very beginning of uh, the, the, the series, of all the movies, we get introduced to another character that carries throughout, another dinosaur. And if you remember that, there's um, a, a scene where the, the, uh, the archaeologist, is it an archaeologist, paleontologist? it? are the dinosaur people? Thank you. You watch Friends. You know Ross's job. Um, Laughter paleontologist. He's describing that uh, you have to be aware of this dinosaur because what this dinosaur does, who's the velociraptor, the velociraptor doesn't just attack you from the front, but they operate and they hunt in packs, and they will get you to focus on that, and then they'll what? Come in from the sides and get you and kill you. They're deceptive in nature. You think it's one way, but you get deceived, and you get attacked, and you actually get taken down in a way that you don't even see. And John is going, these false teachers that are pulling people away from the community, they're being deceptive, and he keeps drilling down. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't have your focus here, and then all of a sudden you get crushed from the sides. That's what he's saying, that these false teachers are pulling people out of their community. And what John is saying, he's like, listen, here's how you know. Check their fruit. Check to see if their inward decision, their conversation matches up with their behavior. And that's the behavior he's gonna give us. He's gonna give us the understanding of what the fruit is. And he's gonna give us a negative example of that fruit and a positive example of that fruit. So for us to look at our own lives and to examine ourselves and go like, man, am I living like this negative example or am I living like this positive example? And what does it mean to shift that focus and to change? And so the negative example that he gives us, we're going to unpack in just a minute, is this person named Cain. We'll talk about Cain in a minute, um, but I just think it's so interesting even how John is doing this to give us this example of our assurance because um, sometimes, sometimes we think like we only need to look at the good example. We only need to follow the good example. But you know, you can learn a lot from watching somebody and learning what not to do, right? I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me. He's my only biological brother, Man, I learned a lot by watching him and watching my parents react to his decisions. It made me learn what not to do. I was formed and shaped by that relationship of watching him do things and going like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. That was dumb, right? So John gives us a negative example first. Let's jump into the text. It's, again, First John. We'll start in 11. We'll go down to 15, and we'll break it down, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll get to the back end of the positive example. This is verse 11. It says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love The brothers, whoever does not love abides in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let's talk about this negative example that John lays out for us. First, verse 11, it's just, uh, he continues to double down on like, man, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. This is the great indicator that your inward decision has outward effects that you would love, that you would love. Now we'll talk about on the back end, like the culture has uh, a crazy definition of love right now and it's really confusing for a lot of us And, and John actually gives us a definition of love for us to kind of grab onto, but he's saying, man, this is the same thing, to love God and to love others. That's the consistent message of the Christian life and then he gets into it in verse 12. We should not be like Cain. So some of you in the room, when you were learning to read, you read the Bible as part of your reading. You grew up in church. You had a family that believed in following Jesus and those values were passed down to you. And some of you have never opened a Bible before in this room. You haven't. You don't own a Bible. Maybe you've read it on the screen. And so there, there's and then there's everybody in between kind of those two extremes. So I think it would be helpful for us to look and go like, I I don't want to just assume everybody in here knows the story of Cain. Or even if you did grow up in the church and you did read those stories, you might think something about Cain that's not actually true. So let's just take a second because Cain isn't mentioned a ton in the Bible. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4 together. This is the origin story of Cain. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It talks about these beginnings. And in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's this poetry of how God has uh, breathed the cosmos into being. He's the creator and he desires relationship with the creation. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, get tricked and they Don't say, thy will be done. They say, my will be done. And now sin, brokenness, enters into the story. And then we come to Genesis chapter four. Let's look at Genesis chapter four, verses one through 10, which is not the whole chapter, but it'll give us an understanding of who this person Cain is that John is referring to. Genesis chapter four, starting verse one, says this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, "Why or what have you done? The voice of your brother is crying to me. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, this is the initial um, scene where we get introduced to Cain and Abel, and then the rest of chapter 4 is kind of Cain's punishment, even in God's grace to protect Cain in the midst of it. But after this scene of Cain and Abel, do you know how many times we see Cain referenced in the rest of the Bible? It's only three times. And they're very short, and they're very, at the end, they're in the New Testament. There's only three other times that Cain gets referenced in the scriptures, let's look at them because they're so short and they can collectively help us understand what's going on in Genesis 4. The first we find is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. With, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is the, the, the great hall of faith of what it means. And Abel is actually the first one that gets mentioned in this long list of people that have walked by faith with God. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Though he was con- uh, commended as righteous, God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The next place is what we just read. First John chapter three, verse 12. Let's read it again. It says, "Why uh, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous." And then one more quick time we see Cain is in Jude chapter one, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. To Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So if John is using this example of Cain and he's saying, "This don't be like this. If you're inward decision and you're called to love, then you aren't, To operate like Cain, what can we learn from these small verses about who Cain is? Well, first of all, what we learn in Genesis chapter 4, and you might already know this from the text, is like there's a comparison of Abel and Cain, the sacrifice that they bring to the Lord. And what you notice is that Cain doesn't bring his best. He doesn't bring his best. Abel brings his best, and we see in Hebrews 4, he does it by faith. It says he brings the firstborn of his flock and he he brings the best before the Lord, to sacrifice before the Lord, but Cain doesn't do that. He kind of gives God the leftovers, not by faith. And God is not pleased with that. And then again, we learn from 1 John what we're talking about, that Cain is of the evil one. He's connecting again his heritage, that he's a child of the devil because he's of the evil one. And then in Jude, we see That he abandoned his sacrifice for the sake of his own gain. He was selfish and he was rebellious. And he takes his anger out on Abel and he kills him. So the question for us is going like, okay, if we're trying to walk with Jesus, we're trying to be obedient to him, do you sometimes give your leftovers to God? Or do you give your best? This is important in the Christian life. Like it could be um, your money. Do you you just tithe what you are able to at the end of the day? You go, well, I've got a little bit of money, I'll give it. Or how about your time? Do you give your best when you budget your schedule and your time and you're going like, how can I connect with God? How can I love him? I'm going to give him the best of my time. Or do you go like, no, this is more important. This is more important. This is more important. And I'll give some leftover if I have it left and God's gracious and it doesn't matter and I can do whatever. How is your attitude when it comes to my will being done versus thy will being done? These are indicators of Cain's behavior. And John's going, don't be like this. It's a good challenging question for us to begin to wrestle with in our own soul. And not only that, we, we see the outward response of Cain's inward hatred. And, and even in Genesis, like, God gives grace to Cain. He brings his leftovers, and, and Abel brings by faith the, the best to God to worship him. And God comes to Cain, and he says, why, why are you angry? Why is your face down? And he goes, don't you know if you, if you bring what, what you, your best that, that you'll be accepted he gives him grace even in that moment to turn and change, but Cain doesn't do it. Instead, he brings his brother out, and he ends up killing him. And for many of us, we go, well, like, if we're not supposed to be like Cain, I'm, I'm not like Cain. I didn't kill anybody. Like, that's, like, brutal. That's, I've never murdered anybody. We all. I, I, I assume everybody in the room, nobody's murdered anybody. Maybe that's not true, but I, I assume that's true, Right? And so we kind of ride off, like, well, I'm not like Cain, my heart's not like Cain at all." And then you look at verse 15. And you're like, "Oh no. Look at verse 15 again, of chapter three. What does John said? "Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer." He's just drafting off Jesus' words in, in, in Matthew chapter five verse 22, where it talks about like Jesus goes below the waterline. Even if you haven't physically killed anybody, if you have hate for your brother or your sister in your heart, he calls you a murderer. Well, then you go like, well, I don't hate anybody, right? Like I might strongly dislike somebody, but hate, like I would never say "I, I hate anybody, we were in Preaching Collective last week, which is it's a group of pastors with redemption that we're all preaching through the same text. And so um, we just spent time uh, basically doing an inductive Bible study of going like, what, is the, what does the text say? Where does it drive us? What's the point of it? How do we find the gospel? What are the problems in it? And in the midst of when we got to the section, one of the other pastors in the room, he said, you know what? I've never met anybody that said, I'm a hateful person. That they would just come out and go like, yeah, what's your sin? Well, I deal with lust or I deal with grief. No, I just deal with hate. I just, I'm a hateful person. He goes, I've never met anybody that said that. Because again, the language is so extreme. But then this pastor goes, but you know what I did? I went and I looked up the word hate in the dictionary. Let me read it for you. This is how uh, uh, our English defines the word hate. An intense feeling of passionate dislike for someone. So you might not use the word like, I hate that person, but you go, man, I really dislike that person. Like, they really annoy me or what they're about. Like, I just, oh, I can't can't stand them. The English would define you as saying you hate them, even if you wouldn't use that language. And John is going like, listen, If we're called to love and you have this inward decision and these people that are pulling people away, they are not operating in the way of love. They are operating in the way of hate. And so for us to go, man, am I operating more like Cain? If I'm really honest with myself, do I care more about my own personal agenda, my will be done, and, and, and the way that gets manifest is like, I don't bring God my best, uh, I, I, I get frustrated when other people do, and like, I really dislike other people. That's an indicator going like, man, have you really been changed? So again, he gives us a negative example for us to learn from, but then he gives us the positive example. That's Jesus. Jesus is always the positive example, if you're wondering, if you, if you don't know the story of the Bible. Jesus, it's it. Um, so let's look, verse 16, as, as, as John continues on, he gives us the negative example of Cain, and now he gives us the positive example of Jesus. Verse 16, he says, by this we know love, that he, he being Jesus, laid down his life For us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Brothers is brothers and sisters, if you're if you're curious. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So again, he comes back to this idea. That love is the great indicator of inward change expressed outwardly. If you follow Jesus and he's changed your life and he is changing your life, love is actually the marker. It's the true marker. But again, in our culture, we can use that word and we can be really confused. We can be confused really fast. Because the world, just like people go like, I'm not a hateful person, I've never heard anybody go like, yeah, love, that's not it. I don't really, I'm not about love, like, but when you say love and they say love, like the world would kind of define love right now in our cultural moment as like accepting of anything and everything, that seems to be the marker, like for me to love you is for me to accept you no matter what, but that logic falls apart really quickly, I can still love you and believe that, man, like, you're created in God's image, but to really love you and you know, like, going like, okay, well, does that mean, like, somebody that's an adult can do something really terrible to a child because that's their truth and you're just accepting of their truth and that's what it means to love them, to let them do harm? Most people go, no, well, no. So it breaks down really quickly So we have to ask ourselves, well, then what does it mean to love? If John is calling us to love as an an indicator of our inward decision to follow Jesus, what does it actually mean? He gives us three things of how to define what love actually is for us to press into. The the first is sacrifice. The second is generosity. And the third is integrity. What it actually means to love, as we're going to walk through these verses, is to sacrifice, to be generous, and to have Integrity. Let's look at a moment by a moment. Verse 16, again, as we read it, just says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. The first indicator for us of what it means to actually pursue love in a positive way is to sacrifice, to lay down our life. I love this definition from Paul Tripp. He says it this way He says, Love is the willing self sacrifice. For the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. Here's what that means. For me to love you, to sacrifice my needs for you, I don't do it because you're going to pay me back one day. I don't do it to get something out of it. And some of us, even in romantic love, we really operate in that that, that mindset that like, okay, I'll give love because I'm going to get love in return. But true sacrificial love does not operate that way. It's the giving of yourself for the good of the other, even if they don't deserve it. Even if they don't deserve it. Which is a challenge to me personally because like I want to love people that I think deserve love. But the person that has ignored me or the person that has hurt me or the person that I go, wow, ah, like, I, like, I, I want to shut love off to them. And what John is saying is actually love in its base is sacrificial. It's sacrificial in nature. And this is exactly how Jesus loves. This is how we sacrifice. He willingly lays down his life for us. Some of the ways this gets expressed, even in our own community here, is some of you guys are massively engaged in the foster care and adoptive space. You've made decisions of sacrifice to lay down your life, and that kid does nothing for you. All they do for you is give you problems. If you're honest, and that sounds harsh to say, but some of these kids that we brought into our homes, that you've brought into your homes, have massive trauma and are massively disruptive for the whole family. And you know what you're doing? You're loving through sacrifice. you go, going, this is what it means to love. It means continue to pursue, continue to love, continue to care for this child that will not give me anything good, and actually they give me more disruption for our family. But you go, like, no, this is the call to love. And you feel called to move into that space. Not everybody is called to move into that space, but you do, and you're making massive sacrifices. Some of us, it's even funny, it's like, well, I came into the office the other day, and Tabitha Van Gertrie was just cleaning. She cleaned some of our offices, like nobody knows about it, and I'm not saying it, so she gets her reward here, that's not it. But, like, she comes in and just cleans, and just sacrifices her time, her energy, her effort for the good of others. She's not looking for anything in return. Some of you guys serve in the toddlers. It can be a sacrifice, because we know your children, right? It's true. And we can get into these spaces, and I know for me, with my own selfish heart, I can go, what's in it for me? Hey, can you serve in kids? What's in it for me? Uh, Sacrificing like Jesus. Now I do think you will get a benefit from doing those types of things because I think in sacrifice, in love, you actually become more human. You actually get closer to Jesus. So there is something in it for you, but that's not your motive for loving. And it's hard to sacrifice. It's hard, but that's what Jesus calls us to. Some of you lead redemption communities, you open up your home every week. And there's moments because we did it for years to go, like, oh man, is this worth it? I got to clean the house again or, you know, cook food or be hospitable when it's been a long day and I just got home from work and it's like, oh man, and our families are clashing and I'm like, oh, like I just, oh, I don't know. No, you're sacrificing. You're saying, I want to continue to walk with Jesus. And one of the indicators of love, this inward decision, because why? You know what Jesus has sacrificed for you. So you go, okay. Spirit, would you help me lean into sacrifice in the midst of love? So that's the first indicator of love as we move forward to sacrifice. The second indicator, verse 17, says, But if anybody has uh, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? At first, we see sacrifice in verse 16. Verse 17 shows us generosity to be generous with each other. To open your heart. That phrase, man, that that phrase will get underneath and in you if you let it. Like this idea of like, yet closes his heart against him. If you're really honest, where do you close your heart against some of your brothers and sisters? Like where do you go? Like, okay, like, man, I care about it, but like, I'm not, no. Like, they they don't deserve it. Like, I've given them plenty of things. Like, I'm not going to continue to give, to be generous to them. That, 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 that. River is dry, I'm not doing it anymore. And you've closed your heart to that person. Maybe because they've hurt you, maybe because you feel like they're not deserving. And what John is saying here is like, no, like continue to love in sacrificial love and in generosity. Now, I, I, I will say I think there's, there's an appropriate way to put up boundaries in loving. But sometimes we can use boundaries as an excuse to close ourselves off and being generous with others. That what the Bible talks about in the kingdom economy, even of money, is to go like, all of us share one bank account. If you're a child of God, if you're in Christ, like all of us should go like, okay, what do you need? What do you need? How do I help you? And a lot of you, that's the posture of your heart in this church. We've seen people give kidneys to other people. We've seen people give money to other people. We've seen it's like, hey, like there's a need, like how can we help with that need? But he's saying, like, man, if you close your heart, man, if you close your heart off to people, and some of it, maybe you're not closed off monetarily with money, but you're closed off relationally. Or, man, you're, you're, you're closed off in your capacity. I know for me, just even a good heart check is when I hear somebody is moving, what's the next question? Can you help me move? My heart is typically closed off to that question. No, sorry, I can't do it. I got something else to do, like, Versus going, like, okay, let me just examine and, like, because there, there are reasons not to help people move if you've got other things you can't get out of them. But, like, is my posture to be generous? Why? Because Jesus is generous with you. Is Jesus generous with you? We just sang about how his mercy is more and how I stumble into this building every week and man, I failed, I've done people wrong, I haven't loved God the right way, I haven't loved others the right way and what, God's mercy is still over me. He says, it's okay, come back. He doesn't stop his generosity to those in need. I mean, imagine Jesus, he comes down and people are rejecting him and they're spitting on him and they're beating him and they're doing all kinds of things to say he's one thing when he's not and he doesn't go like, I'm just going to reject my generosity to the people. No, he goes, anybody that wants to come to me can come to me. And that should be our heart as we do our best to love other people. So sacrifice, generosity, and then the last one we see in verse 18 is integrity. Little children, let us not love in a world or talk, but, in deed, but, but do indeed in and truth. Integrity just simply means you're doing what you're saying. You're congruent with your uh, life in your heart and what you are saying on the outside. There's no faking, there's no pretending. You are who you say you are. You're not just saying good things, which is what these false teachers were doing, but you're actually doing what you say. There's a phrase for cowboys, I don't know if we have any cowboys in the room, but there's a phrase when people kind of look at, you know, the popularity of the style of a cowboy and they go like, man, that person is all hat and no cattle. You heard that before? Like, oh, like... They got the boots and the hat, but they're all hat. They're, they're not cattle. They don't know what it actually means to be a cowboy. They're not becoming a cowboy. They just like the outward appearance. They just like that type of being a cowboy. And these spiritual um, false teachers that were pulling people away—they were all hat and no cattle spiritually. They're saying all these things, but they're not loving. They're not sacrificial. They're not generous. They don't have integrity of heart. And John is pressing against that. He's pressing against it. And we need to be aware of that. And that's how Jesus loves us. He doesn't just say he loves us. He moves in action. And he gives his life for us on the cross. And so we're meant as followers of Jesus to do what Jesus does. We're meant to sacrifice in the midst of love. We're meant to be generous with other people with our love. And we're meant to have integrity to move, to act, not just talk. This is the call of love for us as Christians. This is what Jesus is pressing us into through the words of the Apostle John. In my office, I have two quotes on both sides of my desks. Uh, Desk, I have one desk. Um, And those two quotes are this, I, I have Acts 4.13. On one side, which is a story about John and Peter as they confront the religious leaders after Jesus is is gone, and it says, now, when they saw the boldness of John and Peter, they perceived they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Like, I want people to recognize that I've been with Jesus. Jesus. I'm not saying education's bad, I think education is good. I'm not saying experience is bad, I think experience is good. But I don't want that to be the reason that people um, give me opportunity to listen. I want it to be like, he's been with Jesus. He's changed, Jesus has changed him, and they saw that. The other side of my desk, there's a quote from Eugene Peterson. Who He was a pastor for a long time, he's with Jesus now. I really enjoy the way he thinks about the role of a pastor and he says this, he says, every day I put love on the line. There's nothing I'm less good at than love. I'm far better in competition than love. I'm far better at responding to my instincts and my ambitions to get ahead and make my mark than I am figuring out how to love another. I'm schooled and trained in getting my own way. And yet I decide every day to set aside what I do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failure of loving, daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. And the reason I have those two things is, going like, God, I need you to help me. I cannot do this on my own. And I want to be about love because that is who you are to me. I want to be that to other. People. If someone claims inward change, to what extent is that change a reality outwardly? As we examine our lives in this room this morning, what are the areas of love that you need the Spirit to change you in? You need help. This isn't you do it on your own, this is you surrender more to the power of the Spirit and what Jesus can do in and through you. What are those areas? You're going, man, yeah, I just need, I need change in those spaces. This is what John is driving us to. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, as we read that that part of that story of Cain, the the, the phrase in, in verse 10, it just says again, and the Lord said, what have you done? He's talking to Cain, and he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And if you're somebody in this room and you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus, you're investigating Christianity, you haven't made the decision to give him your life and you're not a child of God, you need to realize that just like Abel's blood is crying out because of Cain's sin, your blood is crying out, your sins have separated you from a God that's holy and perfect and righteous? Do you realize that you are not a part of God family? Do you realize that as you chase after things in life, you're never really gonna be satisfied? You won't be satisfied until you put your faith and your trust and your surrender in Jesus. He's the only one that satisfies you and you're separated from a holy and loving God. If you've yet to make a decision for Jesus, But do you also realize in that chasing for those other things that ultimately won't satisfy you that God is chasing you and he will satisfy you? As you turn, as you repent, as he opens your eyes to the beauty of who he is, his steadfast love that endures forever, and as you turn to it, and you embrace it, and you repent of your sin, and you say, yes, I don't want to live my own way anymore, I want God, I want to bend my knee to you, I realize any forgiveness, and he changes you, and you become a child of God, do you know that you can begin to love as Jesus loves? He begins to change the way you live and you start to be satisfied. You still deal with sin. We all do. We're still imperfect. But God keeps changing us to look like him. He loves you. And he doesn't just say it. He shows it. As he sends his son to die on your behalf, to die on my behalf, to give us access to the Father again. Hebrews says it this way, to kind of close the loop on Genesis chapter four, verse 10. Verse 24 of chapter 12 says, and Jesus, to Jesus, the uh, mediator of the new covenant and to uh, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy and make right the payment for our sin. And so we lean into him. And if you are a Christian in this room and you are in the family of God, that should floor you every single week, every single day that you go, man, I can't get it right, I can't get it right. That's okay, Jesus got it right. How do I lean into him? How do I surrender to him? How do I express an attitude of gratefulness to him? Because you realize how messed up you really are and you realize how good of a savior he really is. And that should cause gratitude to well up in us to learn what it means to love with sacrifice and gratitude and generosity and integrity. Let's be those types of people. Let's pray. Father, would you go before us in our response this morning and change the way we live? We don't want to be like Cain. We don't want to hold back our best from you. God, we don't want to be angry (laughs) at the people that are surrendering to you. We want to be people that love like Jesus sacrificed and gave his life. Thanks for the ways that we've seen fruit in that in our own community here, and thanks how you're changing us. Would you continue to change us even more to look more and more like you? We ask that you would do it, and we pray it in your son's name, amen.